Welcome to The Future Strategist. And again, today I'm going to be talking with Greg Cochran about COVID-19. Greg, how are you doing? Okay. So uh, since we last spoke, Greg, on this podcast, what what are what's happened with COVID-19? Are you more optimistic, less? Probably less. Uh, why less? Uh, I think that uh, it's difficult to control this thing. I think we haven't done terribly well at controlling it. And I think we're probably going to get ready to be a lot to work a lot less at controlling it. Well, that's a, a terrible combination. So it is. So this is, let's take the first one. This is harder to control than you thought it was. It probably takes as much as the Chinese did when they were being scary and extreme to really control it. Mm -hmm. If it has gotten to be very common, if it's not very common and you start very early, milder methods can work as they did in Taiwan, as they did in South Korea, as they apparently mostly are in Hong Kong, uh, and a, a little iffy, but probably working in Singapore and Japan. Yeah. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, though Singapore's had a setback recently. Uh, yeah, but I think not a huge one yet. Uh, what they did the right thing when things started to look like they weren't working, they immediately uh, tried to tighten things up before it got out of control. Uh, and I think that uh, in the Western world, there's hardly anybody who seems to want to do that. Yeah, most of the pressure seems to be to loosen things up. One thing that I, you know, probably people have noticed a long time is there's not a lot of organizational power that's actually dedicated to the welfare of the average individual in most Western countries. You have a lot of special interests, but in terms of uh, groups that say, gee, I'd, I'd really hate it if the average guy in my town got terribly hurt, there seems not to be much of that. Yeah, our government responds to rent-seeking and to lobbying, and it doesn't really make sense to lobby for the general interests because there's a collective action problem. Uh, you could put it that way. There were used to be more organizations that had that were sort of like that, but they're weaker, much weaker than they used to be. And what outside of the United States and in Western Europe, how do you think they're doing? Probably not terribly well, but you know, they have you know in places like Italy, they put enough restrictions on human contact and stuff that they've they've shrunk the. Uh, the number of people with it, but they haven't shrunk it to a real small number. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's all sorts of reasons they want to loosen up and let people go to work and stuff. And as far as I can tell, that probably means it'll just start spreading again the moment they do it. Uh, they, I might be wrong. I mean, it might be there's enough low-cost things you could do if you then do them, things like mass, that you know maybe you can uh, find a way to make this work. I haven't seen anybody do it yet, though. Well, is, that might be a big part of why Asia has done better, like because of their mask use. Is that? Reasonable? I think it's. I think it's helped, but the biggest thing is to either use extremely strong measures, as in China, or catch it early. If you catch it early, there's a lot of measures that can work that simply don't work at higher uh, levels of infection. Uh, things like uh, tracing people. It's, you could do that if the number of people 
involved is not too large. It's, I don't think it's – it seems to be impractical if you're talking about a million people having it. So in Australia and New Zealand, I think they're using tracing, and that's – Maybe it's working. I mean, I, I hear pretty good things about uh, New Zealand in particular, but maybe it's working in Australia. It's so good for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I don't see it uh, – we're not very close to those low levels here. And if we fail to contain it, that means about 70% of us are going to get it? Some number like that. Uh, I mean, it. I mean, you, if you do partial containment, it might be lower. It might be 50. It might be 40. But then you'd have to stick to those methods. As soon as you're relaxed, I mean, that 70% is approximately the number you'd expect if people start acting normally and don't do anything special. And we don't have any other way of of controlling or containing it. Well, recently, some people have been optimistic, claiming that, you know, various studies have shown far more people have it than we thought, which, of course, if true, would mean that the death rate is a lot lower than we thought. What do you think of those studies? I mean, I, I have a zero opinion of them. I think this is a case in which we have people who want a certain result, and they're looking for any error that can convince them that there is such a result. I could be wrong. But I doubt it. Uh, for example, those things, uh, this, uh, what was it, in Santa Clara in uh, mm -hmm. area in California, I think they were probably, they had two things going on. They were accidentally, I think it was pretty much accidental, you know, people started recruiting people who thought they might have had it because it was a way to get a free test. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, it, I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's what happened. And the other thing is, the serological tests, which are measuring if you have antibodies, which should say if you've already had it, they're all very new, they're all very raw, and they all, uh, some of them are terrible, and some of them are simply not great. Uh, they, I think they were just seeing false positives. I also think that that was the whole point of it. I mean, I don't think they were trying to find out what happened. I think they were trying to bolster a particular viewpoint. I know what uh, statistical experts said when they looked at it, they said you did a, you made mathematical mistakes. Mm -hmm. You uh, uh, and by the way, and some of the basis of these mistakes is probably in error too. They're relying on some statistics from the manufacturer. They're, they may not be right. It's there's not a first time that ever happened. Is, I mean, mean the software, the statistical analysis software. They you were no, claiming. I'm saying they they start out with certain numbers that have been provided by the manufacturer of these tests. Is how oh, all of the tests. Oh, okay. And though they may not be accurate because, for example, this is sort of a rush job. People are doing this in a hurry. It hasn't had as much time to be checked. And because there's all sorts of – like if you had a product like that and it didn't work very well, there's a certain tendency to say that it does anyhow. Uh, I mean, you know, people know that in, you know, in uh, articles – about new treatments, for example, that are produced out of pharmaceutical companies, for some reason are much more favorable than other neutral uh, studies of the same drug shortly afterwards. Mm -hmm. There's probably some reason for that. <laughs> yes. Um, is it challenging to figure out like who has been infected? Is this something that we're just utterly failing at, or is this a really difficult thing to do? Uh, it's probably not all that difficult, and people should be working at it but you know the tools are only so good at this point in terms of you have the pcr tests are probably pretty 
pretty decent. Now, what's uh, a PCR test? PCR tests are the ones that are identifying if you have the virus. They're basically saying if you're currently infected. Those are the ones that have mostly been used. They're starting to get serological test results, which is ones where they're testing for antibodies to see if you've already been infected. Some of those are probably accurate. Some of those are not, and it's it's partly the test, but it's also partly when you're trying to test for something and the real number is not very high, you will mostly get false positives. Some of these tests have a fair percentage of false positives. Now, in certain situations, the, the same test could still be useful. For example, like suppose the true number was zero. You'll probably get, you might get as much as a few percent out of false positives. Mm -hmm. And that would make you think it was pretty common, or at least more common than it actually was. But but even the tests with false positives are telling you something. Like when when they would get numbers like one and a half percent or two percent out of that Santa Clara study, what it means, what it tells you for sure is it's not ten percent. It's not anything high. Now it's hard to distinguish between their numbers and the product of mistakes that might you know the true number is like it's not outside the confidence bound for that study for the true number to have been zero. Okay. But it is outside of the confidence for the true number to have been 10%. So even tests that are imperfect can tell you something. Uh, as far as I know, there are not many places where it looks like people have gotten up to that 60 or 70%. There might be some. Uh, I mean, certain locales or certain, a certain building or perhaps certain areas of northern Italy mm -hmm. where it has gotten hit as hard as anywhere. Uh, but, you know, in the United States as a whole, they're probably not very – they're not anything like that and probably not in any large city. And the same thing is true when you have a, a, a statistically biased sample, which doesn't tell you what you'd like to know, i.e. The, the exact number or something close to it. But it may still tell you something. So, for example, there were uh, – now have done some serological tests. This may be ongoing, but it's, it's in the past week, pretty recent. In New York, they were testing people who had gone to the grocery store. Right. And we tested them at grocery stores, and they found that in New York, the fraction of people with these tests that appeared to have already had it was 21%. I would say that is probably a biased sample in the sense that there are probably quite a few people in New York who are either not going to the grocery store or going there quite as rarely as, as possible who are trying very hard to avoid this virus. Right. And the people who are – either because they have to go out or because they choose to go out. Uh, you know, So it's a different sample. And it's probably a sample that has higher than the true average of the whole population of New York. But that doesn't mean it's not useful. It's probably, for example, it means it's probably the true number is probably not higher than 21%. I guess there's a possibility that families are sending out their young people to the grocery shopping. And if it's true that young people are less likely to get infected, then that could bias it a bit the other way but probably not i mean when you have a the simple explanation which is there are people who are cocooning right lots of them uh and then we start having more complicated explanations that involve triple bounces like mm -hmm. yours the first one is going to be the dominant one at this point anyhow mm -hmm. uh that that number is almost certainly high uh i mean but not by a million times or anything i mean it might be that the real number Overall, the population of New York is actually only 10. But the 20, But one good thing about it is that that number is high enough that you know it's not dominated by false positives. In other words, it may be a sample that's biased, but the measurement is probably of that sample is probably not terrible. Okay. Uh, and 
So I would call it a high biased estimate for New York City. And it's not a crazy number. I mean, there I don't think there's any indication it was ever tremendously higher. I mean, there was no other indication that it was 50% or 70%. So, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing considerably lower than 20, but not anything, you know, it, it might be 10, it might be 7, it might be 13, something like that. And those numbers also give you some numbers, gives you some idea about what the IFR, the percentage of infected people that die, at least out of a New York population in a New York situation. And and what is that? What is the number for the death rate? Well, you estimates? also... You know, the actual, I think the official number in New York is, I think, 11,000 or something, but the real number is somewhat higher than that because there's a, like other places, there's been a fair number of extra deaths among people staying at home. Yeah. So the real number, at least as of a few days ago, was something like 17,000. New York has 8.4 million people times 21% is around 1.7 million. It's about a percent, about 1% uh, IFR uh, out of the New York data. Probably uh, something like that, uh, and it and since that number's that's assuming that number was correct. Since it's probably high, the percentage is probably higher than one percent, but less than two probably. You know, in that range. And does that uh, take into account there's people who are yet to die who in New York who've gotten it? No, but you know, d- dealing with what you've got at the moment, it's something like that. Uh, I mean, there are places that people know more about, but people don't like the what we hear from those places, so they prefer to search for bad information as opposed to depressing good information. Uh, for example, now this was an argument I saw someone make, whose name I should remember, but I didn't invent this argument, but I think it's logical. South Korea had a uh, sort of a burst of cases in this particular church, right? and then they really uh, – worked very hard to, by contact tracing and so forth, to limit the spread, and they apparently succeeded Mm -hmm. to the point where they're getting few new cases, and they're certainly getting um, essentially very few or no cases that are from community spread, i.e., you know, like they get cases from somebody who's flown in from somewhere, you know, you know where it's from. So they have an estimate of, you know, they have a pretty good idea of how many deaths there were, and they also have a pretty good idea, I believe, on how many people were infected, because if their tracing was not finding, like if there were a significant number of people who were infected but they did not find through their control schemes, then their control schemes would not have worked. Okay, yeah. it looks as if they must have found most of the case. They've done a tremendous amount of testing. It looks as if they must must have found most of the cases that ever happened in South Korea. Again, if that were not the case, there would be community spread cases coming from these undetected people. Now, wait, what about the possibility is there people who catch it and, and they, they're they not symptomatic, but they also aren't able to spread it? Is that well, not that, a thing? I think if there's no evidence for that. But, you know, I, I think it's just it even, you know, they're doing a lot of tracing. They would be finding other people who had, anyhow, I don't think it's a problem. Okay. No, looking at what we know, the death rate there of the infected is about 2%. Okay, that's pretty horrible then. Well, as these things go, it's mild. I mean, <laughs> it's it's comparable to, it's probably, this thing is probably somewhat comparable to the 1918 flu. Uh, it probably infects more people and kills a smaller fraction, but the product, you know, the total number killed, it may end up being similar. If, if we don't find better ways to deal with it. 
it's definitely more infectious than the flu was, and that means the percentage of eventually infected would tend to be larger. I don't think it's as deadly per capita as the flu, and also the the it has a different profile. It's killing different people. It's killing mostly old people, which there was a pretty strong tendency for the 1918 flu to kill, you know, there it it killed some young people. I mean, you know, children, but it sort of had its peak in the 20s, which is unusual. People, you know, but a bad test is a popular test because it's at least a chance it'll tell you something uh, cheery. Uh, in a similar sense, you know, a lot of the things about the replication in psychology, lots of people did uh, tests that were statistically weak to try to identify some sort of psychological phenomena. And the worse the tests were, the better it was for your career because the more likely it was to say something interesting, yeah, that which, was the, was, which was all false. That was also the Gates Foundation mistake with thinking small schools are better because they were able to find some excellent small schools. But of course, was that gonna, statistical error? Uh, I, I mean, it, it's consistent with that statistical error. Of course, the best and worst schools you'd expect to be small. If there's even then, it says you know, nothing. And I mean, it's yeah. easier to have an unusually high density of good students in a particular school. Right. It doesn't have to have anything to do with how you run the school. Right. But um, if it's small, you're also more when you adjust for all of that, because obviously, as you know, there's, there's a small number of people, you're more likely to get a statistical aberration. And yes, I mean, just no. for everything and say, oh, it's probably what? the teacher and not just luck. What's the name of that nice plot that looks like a highway going off into the, uh, you know, where at the yeah. bottom? What do they call those? Don't know what you're referring to. But... Oh, but you have a plot in which uh, your distance from the, in which as you go further into it, that you're, that's, uh, means you have larger and larger samples. The ones that are close to you are small samples. And there's this funny tendency for as you go into the plot uh, and, the, and the samples get bigger. The, the funnel plot thing? A funnel plot. That's it. Uh, the, the effect sizes mysteriously get closer to zero as you have larger and larger samples. It's funny how that works. Uh, yeah. For so very many things, uh, and that's one of the advantages of doing small samples is because you can find falsehoods, and there are a lot more interesting falsehoods than there are interesting truths. But if, uh, I was just using a calculator, and if you you take two percent death, maybe seventy percent of us get it. This this could kill four and a half million Americans. It's possible. Maybe it won't be two percent here. I don't know why not, but you know maybe maybe it'll be one percent. Maybe it'll be half a percent. I mean, half a percent would only be about a million people, right? But it could also go above if it overwhelms our healthcare system. I mean, it obviously didn't um, in South Korea. It didn't in South Korea. Right. It didn't overwhelm the health oh, right, system. Right, right. It didn't, but it might here, and that would push us above the South Korean death rate. I think we're worrying less about that than we did because I think the uh, assumption was you have to have ventilators, and it looks like for a lot of these cases uh, – Oxygen is enough. Although I guess if you had enough, you could actually run out of oxygen. I am not sure that that is as much of a concern. I think it's something of concern. Like I think that maybe some maybe part of the story of what happened in Italy, where things happened very rapidly and people weren't ready for it at all. Uh, uh, and I think they're doing serological studies in North Italy, which we should soon hear some results from. That'll be interesting. But you know that the death rates weren't incredibly low. Mm -hmm. in in Italy, because there are like the province around Bergamo, I believe it. No, not was it the whole province? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it, it, 
it killed four tenths of a percent of the entire province. And, and we don't have any reason to think everybody was infected. Uh, what the exact number is, I couldn't tell you. It's, it would be very unlikely it would be bigger than that 70% because that's where it stops more or less by itself. So it would be hard to have it be less than half a percent in Italian, in, in that situation. And it might be a good deal bigger if it turned out it only infected a third of the people or something, then, you know, it would mean that the death rate per infection was higher. Uh, you know, people are cheerfully talking about numbers that are clearly uh, very different from the actual numbers that already happened in places like Italy. Uh, like uh, in that uh, report due to uh, Ionides, I mean, it was mostly due to some other guys at Stanford, but he was involved and had his name on it too. Uh, they they were projecting something like a, a point, you know, 12 hundredths of a percent fatality rate, which is again lower than the observed rate in, in parts of Italy. So they're assuming somehow it's going to be a lot nicer to California than it ever was to Italy. Uh, or for that matter, they're assuming it was going to be nicer than it already was to New York because the New York rate's already about, which did not involve infecting everybody in New York, which we now have a pretty good idea of because of the serological testing. Yeah. Yeah, they're assuming that, you know, it would be much lower in California than it would be in New York. Uh, it's not clear to me why that would be the case. People are going to be studying this in depth. There'll be thousands of books written on this. People will be going back and looking at who said what. We don't really have a culture of systematically, you know, like you can imagine a situation in which somebody whose job sort of is supposed to involve understanding things, and if it was shown that his his understandings were always wrong, that it might somehow hurt his career. But that, but in and in some areas it does, but in most areas it's just fine. Uh, particularly if if you make a popular mistake. I mean, there are areas in which. All the predictions by the experts are always wrong. They're always wrong the same way, and nobody cares. Uh, uh, or, for example, you know, there were a lot of people who had opinions of some sort. Only small. This is not mostly in academics. This is mostly pundits and newspaper people and polit politicians and so forth about, for example, the importance and the likely success of invading Iraq. And the great majority were wrong, and they and. In terms of career success, it was better to be wrong than it was to be accurate. So, you know, if, if you come out and you're spectacularly for and you explain why there must really be a, an Iraqi nuclear program, you're, editor, you're likely to end up being editor of the Atlantic. And if you say something accurate, you're likely to have your career hurt, even after you're proved right. In fact, as far as I can tell, because you're proved right, it happens all the time. I mean, we have, you know, we have a lot of areas where the Official predictions are never right. It doesn't seem to bother people very much. Although, I mean, it it can bother. You know, now and then it looks bad. Uh, I mean, particular if, the, but you know, lots of times it just goes. It just happens. Yeah. Well, when are we likely to have a very strong data on the percent of people who are infected in, say, New York City? Soon, probably. I mean, as I once the numbers are substantial, you don't have to worry much about false positives. And we have tests, even if the tests are moderately crappy. I mean, there are tests that have 5%. I think I, I blogged about it. I don't know if we've mentioned it on the podcast. Uh, this guy, Richard Epstein. Oh, you, we, you did mention it, yeah. Oh, well, you know, he's got to add another zero now. Uh, you know, the story is Richard Epstein is a, a legal scholar who's currently at the Hoover um, Institution. Uh, and he wrote a piece explaining that uh, this was no big deal. It was being exaggerated, this being uh, – 
uh, COVID-19, and that he predicted in the first version that it would kill no more than 500 people in the United States. Okay, now that was falsified like three or four days later, and what he did was he he changed the article, so he now said, well, I meant to say – but let me get to the full details of this. First, he said, well, maybe 2,500. I, I really didn't mean to say 500. Mm-hmm. Then he changed it again to say I meant to say 5,000. Yeah. Then he changed it again to say he meant 50,000. And you predicted on the podcast that he would do that when he was at oh, yes, the did, podcast did. happened. He had gone to 5,000 and you predicted he was going to add a zero. And I think I was skeptical. And he did. <laughs> now, this is one small data point in favor of my general picture as opposed to your picture as of that day. I had no I'm not sure you're still thinking exactly the same thing. But I haven't had much reason to change my mind not on this kind of thing. Now by the way, we're now over fifty thousand. So, you know, yeah. he may have uh, I guess the question is, will he end up adding another zero? I guess you can uh, always claim it's not going to end human civilization, so we were right all along. Well, that's not what he said originally. I know, but you could update By the way, your... the Black Plague didn't end human civilization. Right. And if I it mean, does... there's kind of an anthropic argument. It's yep. clear nothing actually ended human civilization, or we, it would not be here, right? Right, so it's a safe prediction to make. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, if somebody said, you know, let's suppose this thing kills this many old people, you know, unprecedented, more, you know, millions of people, there hasn't been another thing like that. I mean, the closest thing like that. And not terribly close, but in the United States, the closest thing would have been AIDS. Mm-hmm. AIDS has probably killed 600,000 plus in the United States over a much longer period of time. Right. And by the way, it was a lot easier to control if we had ever decided to do so. And we found another way of controlling it, although it did take years, which was to come up with effective drugs against it. Uh, but uh, – uh, but there was never any chance it was going to spread and kill everybody or or 10% of the population or anything. Uh, so, you know, you could have said, well, who cares? And I'm sure some people did. But just as some people are saying it now, uh, and, you know, it sort of helps when there's particular groups that are in danger and you're not a member of them. Uh, it's easier for people to say, yeah, whatever. I mean, what I'm wondering about is if a bunch of people get infected and then we, we learn that you're unlikely to get infected again, the people who've recovered will really be pushing to open everything up. It's possible. Uh, mm. Although it's also possible. I mean, since, although I, I know people can be unempathetic, I also know they can be empathetic. Uh, it's possible that some of the people who may have, particularly if they had a more serious case and were pretty miserable or, or perhaps in danger, they might, care more about other people since it now feels more real. Such things have also been known to happen. Uh, I don't know. Or, I mean, I can certainly think that it's true that that people who have had someone close to them uh, be very ill or die, it's probably easier for them to take this seriously than somebody where that has not happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I also should point out that there's a lot of people involved in some of this who are not so much lying as they're or let's suppose only one out of a hundred statements they make is deliberately exaggerated in the direction that favors their cause. But since they're talking to other people, they all share those exaggerations with each other. And that you can get to the point where every single thing being said by that group is completely false, even though most of them either didn't originate any of the falsehoods or didn't originate much of them. Yeah. 
I mean, a lot of people are are saying this will kill a bunch of people, but it, we're doing more harm to the economy. It's not it's not worth the harm to the economy to have well, a chance I mean, at saving a bunch of people. Try to translate this into well, everybody knows vast numbers of people die in a recession, except that that isn't true. Why do they think it? Uh, well, they want to think it. I mean, some they may have made it up, or they may have be copying somebody else who made it up. Yeah, it's also uh, a way all, out of the trade, a way out of the trade-off for them. If you say, "Well, people will die either way," so let's restart the economy. Well, you can solve a lot of arguments in this world by just using that old-fashioned superpower lie, mm. uh, and those statements are all false. They're easily shown to be false. We know numbers, you know, from things like the Great Depression, and by the way, other recessions as well. None of the things they're talking about actually happened. Now, if you had, we're talking about. A world, let's say a, a low-level Malthusian world in which 90% of the people are farmers, in which the you know, population is not really increasing because they can't feed too many more people than what they've got. And then you have a plague that kills 40% of the population. Um, that's a different story. Uh, but, you know, that's uh, – or for that matter, supposedly you – because the point is the economy contracting – inevitably meant people would starve to death because farming was the economy, yeah. okay? Uh, and uh, or, uh, or I suppose if you had a city that depended upon trade, even though they weren't farming, there weren't many places like this, but suppose it, and then trade drops by half because of something happening in the outside world. You might very well have people – in the ancient world, you might have had – some of those people might have starved to death, okay, because there wasn't tremendous margin. But today, there is. I mean, by today, I mean any time in the United States, any time in the past 200 years. You know, there was this famous time in which a, a certain volcano in Indonesia had erupted, and it put enough dust in the air that it made things cooler for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But so much so that in New England, they talked about the year without a summer. When was that, 1817? Okay. And they had frost in uh, June. Mm -hmm. They had... You know, the crops were in poor shape. And in the United States, I've never, I, I didn't hear of anybody starving to death at all because the United States was so food rich in so many different ways that they got by. But there were other parts of the world where that was not the case. There was famine in places in certain areas of Europe. There was some famine in, Swiss, in Switzerland. Swiss, I mean, basically because it was a place that was hard to ship things to in the days before railroads. Uh there was famine in Iceland. Iceland is a tough place. They, you know, it's not an incredibly productive place at the best of times. Uh, so the United States, um, has, you know, we haven't had. Uh, when's the last time we had a great plague? And the answer is, gee, I don't know. Uh, it's been a long, long time. Uh, the 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 uh, 1918 flu killed about six tenths of a percent of the United States. But again, that's not really a great plague compared to some of the greatest ones in history, such as the Black Plague killed 50% of Europe. Okay, uh, the Plague of Justinian, which was also the bubonic plague, that was back, you know, the 600 A.D. period, killed comparable numbers. There have been bigger things. Uh, the biggest one we know is not as big as those historical ones. I mean, that is in the United States history. Uh, there have been local areas that were hit harder. Once in a while. Yellow fever, like it once killed 10% of, of uh, Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, those are, you know, much more localized. So, uh, but uh, 
anyhow, you know, this won't be the end of the world. It might kill a lot of people, and I would prefer not to not to avoid that. Uh, How much looking, longer would we have to stay locked down? Do you think before I have, have no idea? Treatments? It's a problem. I mean, the, the the way in which we're being locked down today is not doing the job. The job, I mean, if you could decrease it drastically, so the number of cases is fairly small, so you can then use these effective methods that don't scale up very well, you know, contact tracing and so forth. You know, this is what, and or if we had done this in, in the first place and, and never let it get here or never let it get here in any significant numbers, I'm not sure what to do now. Nobody knows what to do. Now, there may, solutions may occur, uh, but well, I mean, for example, there was this model that people are using to some extent. Uh, I think some researchers in Wisconsin uh, ab about you know, how this thing is likely to spread, how it's likely to decline, so forth. But the model is screwy. It has big mistakes in it. They assumed that, uh, like, like in Wuhan, it looks like they first did a lot of things to limit, you know, spread, and they dropped these R not from three to one point two five. But that's not enough. Right. That they did more, lots more. They started uh, quarantining uh, infected people in, um, you know, let's say, temporary uh, facilities or camps, and that was enough. And then they got it down to where it was actually rapidly shrinking. So it was shrinking almost as fast as it had grown before. And mm -hmm. the models that people used in this country assumed there was a natural symmetry between the rate at which it grew. And then the rate at which it would later shrink. There is no such symmetry. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, I... well, and they haven't fixed it yet. So in their projections, although they're not incredibly wrong on some of the levels of deaths happening, they assume they will now rapidly decrease, and they are not rapidly decreasing. I mean, I, I'm listening to the president's press conferences, and usually they're optimistic, saying things are better than we thought, and... A couple of things were. There wasn't as much hospital utilization. The deaths the deaths were not terribly off. And by my scale, that's actually the number that matters the most. But the the, the projections for how it would decline in various places after it hit the peak were like hopelessly optimistic. What can I say? It, it never made any sense. As soon as somebody pointed out, you knew it didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, as soon as you noticed they were doing it. And in most of the country – are not is not even below one. Now there may be certain cities and things where it is. It might be below one in New York. I'm not even confident of that. But at a state level, there are maybe a couple of states where it's are not as below one and where the epidemic is not growing. Uh, it seems to me that one thing that's happened about this is everybody's sense of time is weirdly distorted. So, for example, I was, I. You know, arguing with some people who were saying, oh, California is in good shape. I said, right now, with a fair number of restrictions on, the number of deaths is doubling every 10 days yes. in California. They said, well, yeah, but it, you, it was doubling in three days, so now we're out of the woods. Yeah, it, does, thinking, yeah, it does feel like time has slowed down, and that might make really bias our perspective. So I, I noticed one note on Twitter where somebody had told me on March 16th, you know, so long in the past, we can hardly even remember that far back, uh, that uh, about five weeks, yeah. that what are we worried about? It's only killed 62 people. And I made a note a couple of days ago, said, well, yeah, but now it's 47,000. So you think that, you know, if that happens in just over a month, maybe there is something to worry about. But he's, 
He's not worried. He's less worried than he was then because he's nuts. Uh, and lots of people are. I mean, we have gone from nothing to a lot. And, and many people convince themselves that means it's nothing to worry about. One thing that we should not discount, people are nuts. Uh, there have been other cases like this where you know people came up with the definitive answer to a looming problem that really had their uh, had them worried. They just stopped thinking about it, mm -hmm. or they decided to think something false because it made them happier. It will happen sometimes. I wonder what the polls thought. You know, when Russia declared when the Soviet Union declared war on them when they were already at war with the Nazis, do they think? Do they have some? Well, we'll be saved by this. Or I don't think they hope for anything good out of the Russians. I don't think. Uh, like if anybody's had been beaten, has had the, uh, the wishful thinking beaten out of them, it's probably the Poles. Yeah. I mean, their national anthem goes, Poland is not yet dead, not while we yet live. <laughs> it's, it's not exactly a, uh, you know, a bunch of butterflies flying around, uh, with unicorn type song. Uh, they, uh, uh, but, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people who – I mean, there are people who don't have much understanding of the questions involved in this. In fact, one of the things I was finding interesting um, – oh, well, here's an example. There were some epidemiologists – when was this? January, early February, who were having a meeting where they were talking about this problem. And, you know, these are people who you know, supposedly know a fair amount. And uh, the guys from East Asia, they were worried, I would say, for a combination of probably – I mean, some of them in China, they were right in the middle of it, but other countries in East Asia either, you know, feel like I think that China feels more real to Korea than it does to some of us. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is some of those countries had also gone through a smaller scale but educational problem with SARS. Right. And that helped them be mentally ready for it. But for example, anyhow, they were talking about it. And in this conversation, they're saying the guy from South Korea, like one of the observers were saying, I've known him for 50 years. It's 15 years. It's the first time I ever saw him scared. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the, but not all, but most of the European epidemiologists had a very interesting point of view. They said, I don't think it'll get to Europe. And the other guys were saying, why not? I mean, you know, there actually is a lot of traffic between China and other countries in East Asia and the rest of the world. They, they get on these airplanes and everything. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there's a lot of economic involvement and so forth. And they, they said, well, I, I just think they won't. And I have known other people who said that. And they, I thought they had an excuse, like they were young and they knew nothing about the subject. But apparently people who are drenched in the subject and are not 17 years old can say exactly the same thing. In fact, most of those European epidemiologists said, yeah, it won't really get here. Why? Well, but SARS didn't get idea. SARS really didn't get to the United States. Oh, uh, I think it actually got to Canada a little bit, but SARS was something where during the time it was infectious, you were typically already in the hospital. It was easy to, if you know, it was easy to to stop by comparison. It was not something that was as well adapted to being transmitted. I mean, they had cases; they had eleven thousand or eight thousand or something like that. But that's all. It, it was something that if you could react to and stop it. Uh, and they already knew this was different. I mean, they knew a fair amount about it when these guys were talking. And the reason was, uh, I guess you could call it magical thinking or it won't happen to me. Uh, those, those are powerful you know, things, lots of people. And again, 
this is that was the re- I mean most of the professional European epidemiologists had that reaction. It is probably unrealistic to expect a more realistic interaction, you know, reaction from people who know way less. Yeah, uh, that's I mean, true. although I mean, a few people would, but uh, 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 I mean, like you know, doctors don't know much epidemiology generally. I mean, I I know doctors some that do, but most do not. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the financial markets didn't predict this, so they. Gee, yeah. Uh, I told you so. There, you, I just had to get that out. Okay, well, you did, yes, but. Uh, don't worry, they don't understand it now either. Uh, the. Uh, are you sure about that? What? What do you? Yes. You, you think the prices of stock are still much too high? Probably, but you know, there's also things that are com- that nobody knows. I mean, if somebody. I mean, we have all these classes of things you can do, and some of them, if we – like suppose we found out that uh, drug X, which is exists already, is known to be pretty safe. Uh, you know, to our great surprise, it knocks this disease for a loop, and all we have to do is give people those – while we're at it, make it preventative as well, as well as curative. I mean, it's not impossible somebody will find something like that, but it's quite unpredictable. Uh, but if it did, all of a sudden, bing, you know, problem would be solved. It's not impossible. Well, there, there, uh, but no, I think, can't tell you which one it is, if if there even is one. What about the evidence that smokers seem to be getting this a lot less than non-smokers? It's interesting, and it's basically just as much worth investigating as any of the more uh, conventional, uh, you know, I mean, uh, if it was, for example, nicotine. Right. Or, by the way, there are other possibilities. Obviously, nicotine is not the only chemical in a cigarette. But suppose, yeah, well, I mean, that would work. Now, and by the way, you wouldn't have to smoke forever. We would still be working on a vaccine. But, yeah, you, you could maybe do it. Uh, well, you could take I nicotine mean, gum. You don't have to smoke. It, if nicotine – if this is true and if nicotine is the active ingredient. But, you know, I've had trouble explaining to people that uh, – you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, chloroquine and oxy. What was it? You know, a derivative of chloroquine. Right. And I said, you know, it's not inconceivable, but it probably won't work. Most things don't, and most things that people get enthusiastic about, particularly if you know it's uh, you know you're desperate. Their samples are small. The evidence is blurry. They're usually wrong too. Uh, and uh, you know, and I said, don't get emotionally involved in it. I was comparing it to Edison. Uh, I mean, Edison tried many things to, in the process of trying to come up with a filament for his his uh, incandescent light bulb. I mean, he had things that worked, but they didn't last very well. Uh, and but one thing he did not do was try something, have it not clearly work, and then get obsessed about trying that one thing over and over, saying, but it, but it ought to work. He didn't care. He tried something else. And then another thing, and then another thing. He wanted a good success, and he was willing to quickly look at many things rather than getting obsessed about about a particular thing. Uh, now, I think other people are looking at many things, but I think you know the amount of effort we've looked people have put into the uh, uh, this malaria drug is probably not justified when there are so many other things to try that that might actually work. You, you know. Um, that seemed to be hard to get people to do. I've heard people suggest other things, but you know, I know that in terms of drug development, you know, some companies will say, you know, we have a test. It's not very statistically strong, but uh, but it would detect, you know, a real 
extremely effective drug. Mm-hmm. And that's the only type we want. So they were testing, um, you know, whether certain parasitic worms could be, and and they would like, they would have a little container and would have one worm in it. And they said, look, if it doesn't kill it, if it just makes the worm feel peckish, we don't care. We want something that goes bing, instantly kills it. Anything less is not a drug we're even that interested in. But because they had such, they had lots and lots of statistically weak tests, but they were strong enough to find a strong effect, but they could test more things that way. And they yeah. tested a zillion. One of them turned out to be ivermectin, which is very effective. That's the one they discovered with this procedure. So sometimes it's good to look at a lot of things and not obsess too much about any particular thing. Although, you know, there could be exceptions. If there was this particular thing that said, we have this, such a strong argument that it ought to work. You know, like, it, I mean, like, how, what would be a strong argument? Let's suppose we were testing this uh, thing and we had we had chimpanzees, you know, very similar to humans as our experimental animal. I mean, we're not doing that, but, you know, imagine it. Uh, and we said, this drug works like a charm in chimpanzees. I said, boy, that sure is, that is a, a strong hint. Mm-hmm. I would, I would give up more slowly on that, but uh, I don't think this thing has even been shown to work in mice or anything. Uh, it has been shown in cell culture, I think, in vitro. But you know, most things that work in vitro don't work in actual organisms. So there, there must be a huge number of scientists out looking for compounds that will help treat or prevent this. There are, and you know, numbers are good. Uh, uh, similarly, with uh, the number of uh, people working on it, the number, number of different attempts at making a vaccine. At this point, I've heard of over 100. Oh. And that could be good. And there's also things that people could do that are not crazy, that are but that are not conventional in terms of testing it. They're talking about challenge tests. In other words, we will give some people who have this, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a vaccine that we have, let's say, pretty good reason to think it works. I mean, like maybe it already works in monkeys, for example. And we have something like that, actually, already. Uh, and we says, how do we tell if it works in people and also know something about the side effects? I said, well, we could, if we had volunteers, we could in, we could give them this vaccine and then we could deliberately expose them to the virus. See, that's quicker than waiting for it to happen by accident. Right. Um, and see if it works. And also, you know, the side effects, if, you know, if, if they're a problem or not. And we don't normally do that because they said, well, you're putting some risk on these guys and so forth. They said, so you are. But, you know, we also have people in Marines and they take risks, too, in order to do at least some of the time to protect the country they're from. If you have volunteers. And by the way, these the risk for a young person does not seem to be very high. So yeah, and you could also promise the person excellent medical care if they do get it. It might not on average be worse for them. Maybe. But anyhow, they're talking about uh, – doing such things and if they do it's possible you could get a vaccine much more rapidly how much more rapidly like when could we see it i'm not sure exactly more like a year than several years okay. uh maybe less i mean I, I don't really know why if you had the vaccine i mean all of these takes take some time but some of the some of the things that require time are are not physical processes they're you know decision time or approval time or mm. Um, you know, those you might be able to cut through. I mean, if you say, I would like to know what are the side effects of this vaccine that appear after six months, there's no way on earth to do it, but wait six months. Mm-hmm. So some things you can't speed up. Uh, uh, another thing, which is, uh, 
<clears throat> I think I, I've, I've talked about a bit before, but I am sort of encouraged by is, you know, antibody therapy, which is uh, many people are trying it. And as far as I can tell, all, all the accounts are positive. You're using antibodies from somebody who's recovered. You know, you, you get a plasma donation that right. has those antibodies. Right. You have mentioned this before and that that's people are responding uh, well to that. Uh, patients are responding well. I don't know if we're putting as much effort into it as we should. One of the problems is, uh, dare I say it, it's apparently not patentable. Uh, <laughs> nobody thinks they can make uh, – in fact, it takes lots of individuals uh, – deciding to let's by the way this is actually not a very difficult decision i don't think i mean to give plasma is of less of an imposition than giving blood you know giving whole blood you know you can only give so much you you can't lose too many what red cells or your oxygen carrying capacity is reduced so normally people give blood not too much not too often but with plasma donation you you re-inject the red cells you're only losing uh plasma that's actually i mean it's easier to do. You can do it more often. You don't feel as tired when you do it. In fact, as far as I can tell, you don't feel tired at all. So, uh, um, but it's it's old old fashioned. You know, it shouldn't matter, but it does. Saying, well, this is the sort of thing we used to do a hundred years ago. I said, yeah, and it works too. And also have people saying, well, you know, people can only do this like once per person. I said, that's not true. I've seen people say that. Uh, I said, you can usually give enough at one time for two or three. Uh, treatments for somebody else and the other thing is that you can give again I don't really know where they're getting this you can only do it once uh, the uh, and by the way there is another option although it's slightly more complicated but like let's suppose we don't have enough people who are recovered or they are they refuse to contribute because they they just don't want to I mean although as I said it's not much of a deal it's easier than giving blood, which many people already do, yeah. than giving whole blood. But um, another thing people used to do uh, is if they could get samples of the of whatever pathogen. In this case, we would need we would probably need to make a bunch of coat proteins of the uh, virus, but we can do that. Okay, we know how. And then you can inject some animal, and they will produce antibodies. Even if we don't have enough recovered people, we oh. could. Well, that's how we used to do this. I mean, for example, people would take a certain strain of uh, pneumococcal, uh, you know, the, the bug that causes a lot of pneumonia, and they would inject them into horses, and then the horses would develop antibodies, and they would tap the horses, get some plasma, and use that to treat people, and it worked. Now, it is not quite as good as taking uh, human antibodies because horse antibodies, for example, there was a tendency for people to get allergic to them. Uh, so when you gave it to people, you might only be able to give it to them once. Just a very basic question. What is an antibody? I mean, I've heard the term, but like what exactly oh, is going on uh, with antibodies? The subject is actually complicated, but what it boils down to is there are certain, quite complicated, uh, but there are certain cells in the body uh, that uh, make certain little proteins that have that have the ability to latch on to other things with different uh, configurations, you know, different shapes. Uh, and, uh, and you essentially have uh, a set of antibodies that can make almost any conceivable shape. And there is a you know, fairly complex system involving other white cells and other things, such that if you have uh, an infection by something, if you have 
antibodies that happen to fit some of the outer shapes, you know, the coat proteins or something mm -hmm. of this pathogen. And they can be a wide, it can be, you know, a wide variety of different pathogens, uh, viruses, but also other things. Uh, but the cells that make that, you know, by, a, again, a complicated system, I would take, I would have to review and takes an hour, an, at least an hour to even half explain. The cells that made that particular one that matches uh, are stimulated to proliferate. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with a lot of these B cells making the antibodies that latch onto and tend to neutralize. And the neutralization may, can be things like it makes, uh, it may block some of their infection. It may lead other white cells to attack them. It's part of a complex system. But anyhow, you end up with a, after you say have virus X, usually you have now a population of B cells that makes antibodies to that, and that population persists. So in the future, if you get that virus again, you probably have at least a few antibodies and also the existing uh, clone of B cells, uh, mixed clone actually, uh, is already there, and it rapidly makes a bunch of antibodies against this situation they've seen before. Uh, and uh, so this is acquired immunity. This is something, this is why you get immune to things after you've had them. And the great majority of viruses, uh, you get last, you know, at least reasonably lasting immunity. It doesn't always last for your lifetime, although for many things it does. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and the way it works is it, it, it makes this va incredibly large number of, of different shaped antibodies. Uh, in fact, it sort of uses mutation inside the uh, antibody cells as a way of generating more different shapes. And the shapes that match are eventually uh, the cells that made those matching shapes get amplified, and, and you end up making a lot of this stuff, and they're still around for the next time. So... Uh, uh, and this, you know, and I'm greatly oversimplifying. It's a very complicated thing, but it works. Uh, and uh, uh, if you, when you would give somebody who had pneumococcal pneumonia, those, uh, particularly in the early stages, uh, you give them, say, a uh, pint of of serum that had those antibodies, they could, they would get noticeably well by the end of the afternoon. By the way, one thing we should consider is. Uh, I mean, let's suppose we don't have enough recovered people. I think we might, but let's suppose we don't. And that could be true, particularly if it starts spreading very rapidly again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not slow now, but it could be faster. Uh, you could, in fact, create more serum. It would be serum that wouldn't be quite as wonderful because you could probably only use it once per person because of allergic effects. But you could use horses. Uh, you could use perhaps other animals. I mean, horses are the one I'm familiar with in the past. Uh, I'll tell you, there are sufficiently old-fashioned notions. There are ones that people, they're very reluctant to do them. And it isn't just financial. It's just people don't want to do old-fashioned things, even if they work. I don't entirely know why. Okay. So that, I mean, that's that's promising. I know we have an upsell path that's likely to work. And people are trying this out and it is kind as of working. As far as I can tell, I think it is working. Uh but, you know, part of the reason is, uh, you know, people would like to make a lot of money on something. And this one, you know, if it's involved being donated from a lot of survivors, uh, that's there's no you can't patent it. Now, you might be able to make a version where you could if you could find a few of those antibodies that are very effective. There are ways to mass produce them. They're not instantaneous. We would have to gear up to make them. 
but we could, and, and that and people are working on that too. But uh, I guess my biggest concern is, uh, you know, even though there are some promising leads, none of them are something that's going to get done instantly. And I think people's patience for trying to uh, lock down is pretty limited. Yeah, although it would help if we talked more about things that are likely to work. I know Trump has mentioned things that have a low probability of success, but it would helpful if you know, things were said like, oh, this, you know, the serum approach could work. It's most likely to. Let's just wait another few months. Well, I was thinking of someone I know uh, who has already had this and survived, and I know he's volunteered for a program to give uh, uh you know, to give some plasma for mm -hmm. experimental use and so forth. I mean, I, I don't think it'd be incredibly hard to find people who want to help. Yeah, and, it's, and, and it's it's not incredibly difficult. It's not incredibly painful or it's not risky. Uh, and, and, and if they don't help, we could pay them, sure. But, you know, I've signed up for lots nastier things than that. And so, uh, like, uh, you know, we have bone marrow donor programs. Mm -hmm. The way, uh, you know, you need a match people need their bone for certain conditions people need a bone marrow transplant not quite as often as they used to but they still are cases they do and uh and they need something that's a match or close to one and that can be hard to find because there's tremendous amounts of variation in some of the genes involved in this and uh but there but at least now i think it has actually gotten easier i think today they give you uh, a drug that causes you 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 end up having some uh, stem cells for bone marrow in your bloodstream, and they could just take a blood sample to get it. But years years ago, let's say 15, uh, the way they got your bone marrow sample that you know, let's suppose you turn out to be a good match, and they say we need this this kid has a plastic anemia, he needs a bone marrow transplant. How do we get the bone marrow out of you into the kid? They stick a needle into your into the center of your femur, the big the biggest bone uh, in your thigh, and yeah. no. Now, mostly they were nice about it, and they would use anesthetics. But I'm just saying it was a non-trivial thing. But yeah. large, lots of people signed up for it. I mean, I signed up for it. I think it, I shows... signed up for that, I remember, a long time did ago. Did you know? Did you fully realize what you were signing up for? No, I remember I was waiting in line for it, and I'm thinking this was not an effective use of my my time because I had to wait in line. There was some drive to do it, and I had to go somewhere, and then I waited in line for a while, and I'm like – I realized later the odds of my being asked to do this times, you know, it wasn't. An Somebody's got to do it. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I had a much more, I, by the way, I would not enjoy it. I, but I would do it, you know, if it would help somebody, but I'll tell you, I'd hate every moment of it, particularly if I'm, you know, because it hurts, but, uh, yeah, pain is but, bad. but, you know, Hey, I've done things that hurt a whole lot more and some of them for no reason at all. The, uh, but, uh, you know, pain is overrated. The, I say that, and I know people have gone through a hundred times more than I. But I've gone through some, so I at least have some feeling for it. Uh, but uh, but the funny thing about that was, you know, the way that in those years, and I think they may have changed this, but they had a unique way of funding it. What was that? They they charged the donors. Really? Have you ever heard of a screwier approach? Uh, they said, you know, in order for the privilege. If you're lucky of having somebody stick a needle into your thigh bone, we want you to pay 70 bucks. Yeah. That was their policy at the time. And I said, at the time, I blew up at them. I said, you're insane. You want to charge me for the possibility of having somebody? They said, well, you know, you don't have to pay. Why? He says, well, we don't charge people who complained. <laughs> 
uh, a reasonable way of raising money for your organization. <laughs> oh, there was more to it than that. There were it was stupider than I have time to go into, but it was you know you know that's a you. You know, that's nearly unique. I mean, charging people for the prospect of eventually sticking a needle into their thigh bone. Uh, I mean, if it weren't for the honor of the thing, you know, I wouldn't want to do it. But uh, but at any rate, uh, I think we need to pay more attention to these antibody therapies because we know how to do them. They probably work. Uh, but somehow the excitement level is smaller. I'm not quite sure why. Now, mind you, they can't do everything. Like, I don't think they'd be a very good preventative, although they might be able to – like, suppose you said, I have to do a job in which I'm going to be exposed to this in a way I can't – you know, I, I, a mask is not going to be enough. I'm going to be exposed for a month. If you had a transfusion of, of somebody else's antibodies, they might well protect you for a month, but they don't last forever. Well, what uh, if we combine this idea with Robin Hansen's idea of deliberately exposing people to low dosage? Could that work where I – you, you go into quarantine someplace, they'd give you the antibodies at the same time they injected you with the COVID-19. Would that mean you'd well, relatively you might, easily get immune? You might immunity? not get sick enough to elicit a strong immune response. But uh, uh, the, the general variolation idea, I don't have any – nobody's ever had any solid evidence that it works the way people would like it to work. Nobody's ever studied it at all. I mean it's been abandoned 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the idea that the, the viral dose is really important. Logically, it's possible. Is there any actual evidence for it right now? No. Right. Uh, it might not. By the way, I can think of many things that are logically ought to happen with the complicated systems like, you know, the immune system and disease, but most of them don't. Uh, the, you know, it's because it's complicated. I mean, like we know enough that our guesses are probably better than a witch doctor's. But the majority of our guesses, the majority of things doctors say, this really ought to work, uh, they, you know, mostly they don't. Some of them do. I mean, it's, it's, we're up to the point where our guesses are not totally random. But, uh, but they're not real good. So uh, variolation strikes me as a bad idea. But uh, as a – but – but we have other things we can do. I mean, as I said, if we hire – I mean, it's not the worst idea, but we have more promising things. The passive antibody stuff is promising. There are ways we could, we could ramp it up. We could mass produce those antibodies via monoclonal antibodies, and that would even allow somebody to charge for it, you know, which is apparently vital. Uh, the uh, – I also think that if we had a lot of people who'd had it, I think the fraction that would volunteer to give some plasma is actually pretty high. Pro well, probably well over half. I think most people, I mean, you know, the punch you would get from having a plasma donation that has these antibodies, you'll do more good with that than you will with the average pint of blood you donate. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they get quite a few people to do that. Uh, so there should uh, be a big campaign in New York City right now to say, hey, donate blood. Maybe there already is, but. There are some programs underway. I don't know how big they are or how well advertised, but I know uh, a friend who lives near New York who is already doing this exact thing. So there, some programs exist, but I don't know the extent of them. I know there are many places in the world where people are trying passive antibody therapy, and so far I haven't heard anything bad at all. It seems to work. But uh, and when you say uh, seems to work, what what does that mean? They seem to get better. The, the, the people who were pretty sick are, are, are noticeably better. I haven't seen statistics. I haven't seen numbers. I haven't heard anything scary, but I haven't seen statistics. Uh, I would say my strongest prior on this is that it usually does work, and on a, va on a very wide spectrum of diseases. Uh, oh, 
one other comment we should talk about. You know, th this is an interesting way of confusing people, but it is WHO after all, and that's apparently their only purpose in life. Uh, they said there is no evidence that recovering from this and having antibodies makes you immune. Yes, I saw that. I said, well, so what are the odds that it does? I said, oh, I don't know, 97%. Yeah, they meant no evidence in the weird non-Bayesian way of that we haven't done a study that shows this, not right. that a reasonable I mean, person would interpret the existing I mean, evidence. Like in uh, the year 1000, there was no evidence that some the genetic effects made some people taller than others. Why? Because nobody had even knew there was such a thing as genetics, right? right. But it was true. Uh, and by the way, if you'd asked a lot of farmers, they would have said, yeah, something like that is true. Now, is uh, there an absence of evidence thing going on with that, that if, if it were true, you could get reinfected relatively easily? We would have seen that happening and it would be recorded. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure. But I'll tell you, the odds are probably 97% that, it's, that you'll have at least moderately long-lasting immunity. Because I, I would imagine, right, you're probably quarantined, right? In China, you were taken to a place if you have it. You're with a whole bunch of other people that have it. So if you could get it again, you probably – there'd be people who would get it again because you're probably near a lot of other people who have it. And I doubt they can time it right. So now you don't have it. You get to go. So you're Probably as you get over it, you're still being exposed to a lot of other people that have it. I would say that, you know, there are certain – uh, let's limit it to viruses. There are certain viral disease, diseases that we tend not to get a good immunity to, sometimes because these things have ways of hiding from the immune system in certain cells. This is true of a herpes class infections, for example, like chickenpox or herpes 1 or herpes 2. They can persist inside, inside, inside certain nerve clumps and even reappear many years later. There are uh, other viruses that, uh, you know, generally speaking, any virus that you don't tend to completely get rid of when you successfully recover from an infection, you know, those are the ones that it's hard to make a vaccine for. But the great majority of all viruses are ones that do go away when you get, you know, your body responds, the antibodies, it makes antibodies and so forth, and then it's gone. So, you know, you had measles, you're over it, you don't have any measles, most, except for a tiny weird fraction we'll talk about another day, and you're immune to measles. Uh, that works with rubella. That works with works with the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of viral diseases. This one is probably one of those. Uh, and when they said that, you know, they I've seen people use this as rhetorical. It's you know kind of a rhetorical trick to make it sound as if it's unlikely X is the case when in fact it's overwhelmingly likely. But we haven't worked out the details yet. I would say now I don't actually think WHO is trying to make you. Worried that vaccines won't work. They're they're very likely to work. I would say absolutely. Again, not absolutely certain. There are funny things that happen in some viral diseases. Uh, some viral diseases, you know, tend to change their coat proteins often enough that the virus may not still work. I mean, the vaccine may not still work after another year or so. That's the case with the flu sometimes. Uh, <laughs> There are other reasons. Sometimes you get funny interactions between antibodies and virus that actually can make a disease work. I know of examples like that. There are only, but it's kind of rare, okay? Happens in dengue fever, but it doesn't happen in smallpox. It doesn't, it doesn't happen in 95% plus of viral infections, okay? So although it is certainly worth investigating this case, right now, you know, for practical, medium-term, and short-term action, 
go with the 95%. Yeah, vaccines will probably work. Uh, immunity will probably last at least for a while. Uh, I mean, look, if immunity lasted only two years, we'd end up and we'd make a new vaccine every two years like we do with the flu. Mm -hmm. We could deal with it. Uh, by the way, an, another related topic, which we have some more information on, is, you know, is this virus likely to be evolving and changing? I would say yes. I saw several professional virologists who said no, but that's because they're all crazy. Uh, uh, this, this virus has about 30,000 uh, nucleotides in its RNA. Mm -hmm. uh, the mutation rate. We'll just wait for comparison. How many do humans have? Three billion. Well, counting two copies of everything, six billion. Okay, so more. A lot more complicated. I, in some sense, yes. Okay. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, what's the mutation rate? The mutation rate is higher per base than it is in humans, but it doesn't have many bases. So uh, let's say it's ten to the minus six for replication per nucleotide. That means the average one doesn't have a single mutation, but let's say one out of a one out of a thousand does or something like that. One out of a thousand virus copies has at least one change in its in its RNA. Mm -hmm. And these are rough numbers. They're not, I'm just trying to make a point. Uh, how many of these virus copies do you have inside the body of an affected person? It says, I don't know, a trillion. Oh, that's. Okay, so <laughs> probably in a single individual, every possible single uh, base mutation happens. Uh, now, if one of those things gave you an advantage, uh, it like it was better infect. It was like more likely to infect the next cell or something, less likely to be cleared by the immune system or something. You can get very noticeable viral evolution inside a single person. Now, the thing is, it's not evolving. You know, it's not necessarily evolving to be transmitted better. It's involving. It's getting better at spreading from cell to cell inside you. So you have two different things that has to negotiate. One is spreading inside you. One is spreading between people. And those actually probably have somewhat different uh, requirements. Uh, and and with between people, you're probably not transmitting a trillion to the next person. You might only be transmitting, you know, fifty or something. So there's bottlenecks involved too. Uh, but 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 we know, for example, that uh, uh, you know there's a technique people use called passaging, which is, for example, there was a virus people were interested in. They wanted to study it in mice, and they could get it to infect mice, but it didn't make them very sick. So it wasn't a very good model, because in humans it did make them pretty sick. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they they gave it to a mouse, and then. While it was growing, they picked a sample from that mouse and injected another mouse, and they went through a series of 20 mice, or was it 25 that way? Okay, and at the end, it had changed. It had become better at growing inside mice, so much better that it was lethal. Okay, this, vac this virus was called SARS. It's the closest known virus to the one we're currently running into. So could it get worse? Sure. Because it did. They do this all the time. By the way, it was as it got better infecting mice, it was also probably getting worse at infecting humans. Uh, and that is a, the technique is more often used for that to make a weakened strain of something. Sometimes this has been involved in making a vaccine or something. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if they'd want to do that today. It's a little tricky. Sometimes the evolution reverses. You can see it might. 
but it is a technique that has been used. Uh, at any rate, so when people say, oh, I, this thing's hardly ever mutated, I said, oh, they mutate enough that you get very noticeable change going through just a few individuals. Okay, now, one reason this is particularly likely is that virus was new in mice. It probably never been there before. It was not very good at doing – it was just barely able to spread in mice. Okay, uh, but uh, it got better. You know, when you first introduce these things to this new environment, this virus is now in a new species, it has to be halfway good at it to succeed at all. But that doesn't mean it's great at it. It could get better. It changes more rapidly in the beginning than it tends to later. Because there's a lot of easy improvements. A yes. lot of easy improvements it could stumble upon through the right. mutation process. Right. Uh, and, uh, I mean, there are known cases where you can have dangerous evolution of a coronavirus. By the way, this is a different coronavirus, not closely related to the ones we were talking about, not closely related to SARS, not closely related to Wu flu, but there is a coronavirus that infects cats. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has a nasty tendency. You see, it tends to be chronic in the cats. Some things are. Mm -hmm. But it has, there is a possible evolutionary change <coughs> that has two consequences. It makes it harder to be transmitted from one cat to another, but it makes it better at transmitting from one cat cell to another. Mm -hmm. Now you can see within the cat, there is selection for that second thing. Right. If that, if that change ever happens, it tends to become more common. What this means is cats that are infected by with this thing for a few years, they tend to have the second change happen. And it's the same second change. It's a particular change that, that changes the proteins in a certain way. And that new version of it, which is not very infectious between cats, fortunately, kills the cat. Uh -huh. Because it's more severe to the cat. It's just less good. And I said, this is a case in which the evolution inside a single individual routinely causes trouble. Yeah. Okay. Now, is this likely in this? I said, not really. But, you know, for the people who – I know there were people who said, well, these things don't really change very much. I said, when they're new, they change like mad. And there's already some evidence. You know, they – so I had people say, well, you know, you don't expect it to change. And I said, there are two kinds of change to worry about. One is change that would make a vaccine stop working. That may or may not happen. Um, I mean, for more established bugs, most of them don't change so fast that you have to have a new vaccine every year. Mm -hmm. The flu is unusual in that sense. Okay, but with a new bug that's adapting to people, is it conceivable that it will change in a way that will make it more difficult to deal with? Perhaps it spreads more easily. Perhaps it's more dangerous for the infected person, are those things possible? There was an editorial in Nature saying, ah, oh, you don't need to worry about that. But that editorial in Nature, or maybe it was Nature Microbiology, actually I think they reprinted it in Nature, um, it was nonsense. I mean, uh, it can happen. It's particularly likely in a brand new virus. And, and it was interesting, they gave several examples of cases where it looks like a key mutation made something better at infecting humans. And so their conclusion after those examples, and they mentioned Zika virus, they mentioned Ebola, they mentioned HIV. After finding three examples, they said it, it probably won't happen. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to give these guys credit. I don't actually think they were necessarily part of some, you know, evil motive. I think they're just stupid. Uh, 
you make different judgments on different on what people do. That's my judgment. It's really stupid. But historically, do we know of an example where we had a widespread pandemic that changed qualitatively partway through and got worse? And we do. The last big pandemic, which was the 1918 flu, it changed. It got worse. Now, it didn't get worse in a way that made previous immunities go away. So of people who got the the first, we'll call this 1918 light, mm-hmm. they were immune to the later version. That's good, at least. Yeah. If, we, if we'd made a vaccine, which we didn't, it probably would have kept working. But the disease became more dangerous. It changed. It Its lethality probably doubled or tripled or more in the in the second version that then spread worldwide. Uh, could this happen with this? I said it could, but I think it's very unpredictable. It is, however, something you should be watching for. That's a, you know, we have different kinds of surveillance. We're looking for, you know, is it here? How common is it? How many people have had it? It would be a good thing if someone or some set of people were checking hard to see, looking for any significant qualitative changes. Could this thing be getting better or worse uh if if we could at least you know if for example what if the ifr if it changed in a way that it spread 10 percent faster but killed you more often that could easily still spread yeah remember people are saying well you know this thing has to get milder because it kills such a high percentage i said let's suppose it kills one percent that's not a high percentage period people are talking about it they're invoking facts that don't exist by the way, this is very common on this subject. I mean, I hear endless things. Everybody knows the trend is X. I said, there's no such trend. It never happened. Nobody's even ever said it before you. And they said, but everybody knows X. I said, X didn't happen. It's not, you know, it keeps going. I mean, although, you know, some people have gone very far in this. You see, you know, to really maintain that this is all just, uh, you know, this is not really a threat and we're all doing this over nothing. It involves one of the wider ranging conspiracies of all time, since the people who would have to be in on it would be the Chinese Communist Party, the government of South Korea, the government of Japan, the government of Taiwan, the government of the United States, the Pope, the Queen of England. I mean, there would have to be people involved that aren't actually lizard people. I mean, uh, you know, it has to be everybody in fucking creation uh, has to be part of this story. Although I don't think that would discourage many people. I mean, there are many people saying uh, at this point that, well, you know, those people aren't really dead in New York. Or or one of my favorites says, well, it's not really happening. They're just reclassifying deaths from other causes. I said, the total death count is running two to three times higher. Can you make more dead people by giving them new names? Uh, The... uh, and these are common. These are widespread things people are saying. Yeah, I've encountered that as well. And they're completely loony. Uh, I mean, for example, somebody will say, uh, well, you know, we're just counting anything as, it, as being killed by it. I said, well, most of the time we're right. I mean, let's suppose we had a guy who was diabetic. Yeah, his lifespan is shorter. He's less healthy. What are the chances he'll die in the next three weeks? Well, not very high. But if he catches this, the chances go way up. It's, uh, I mean, some of it is, you know, I mean, and by the way, this is a very strong, I mean, much stronger recently. Uh, I mean, there's a very strong tradition going on or a movement that we can make things be true by just clicking our heels together and wishing. 
Well, I this would is say, really scary for a lot of people. Um, well, they probably should be scared. Scared is a, you know, there is a reason. Fear evolved. You're supposed to, you know, do useful things when there's a reason to be afraid. You're supposed to, you know, run away. If you can't pick, if you can't run away, trip somebody else so the tiger will eat him and then you'll run away. Or mm -hmm. pick up a rock and maybe you'll get lucky. I mean, you know, there are things to do in this life rather than pretending the problem doesn't exist. Uh, but, uh, oh, what was the latest one? We had some guys who, using serological tests, which also have, you know, fairly high, I mean, it varies with the test, but they they tend to have pretty high false positives. I think, where was this? San Bernardino? Somewhere in California. A couple of guys said, well, we've tested a lot of people, and we're seeing a lot of people. By the way, a lot meant 6%. Mm -hmm. uh, and they said, you're, this is an urgent care place. Are we talking about potential biases, whether this is a random cross-section? They said, well, we don't care. We're MDs. As MDs, we are, you know, it's like, you know, when Nietzsche talked about being beyond good and evil, MDs are beyond math. <laughs> uh, uh, at the same time, because MDs do useful things, are sort of in a position of authority over their patients in many cases, and often are well paid, they have a tendency to think that they are, uh, you know, God, as, mm. although supposedly surgeons are the peak for this, and uh, they aren't really. I mean, in terms of this problem, like there are probably a lot of doctors who are hopefully doing everything they can to help people who are ill here, but it doesn't make them epidemiologists. It doesn't make them understand a whole lot of the questions you need to understand here. It's interesting, actually, there's an awful lot. I mean, the average person in medicine is probably worse at understanding an epidemic than the average guy in, pi in, in uh, particle physics, with the exception of a particular gravitational th theorist that we will not mention here. The, uh, but yeah, they are. I mean, they're, they're mathier. They things like exponential functions are, you know, the, something that as familiar to them as a spoon. Right. You know, they reach out, they use it. They don't even have to. They don't have to brush up on spoonology every time they do it. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah. No. Uh, well, we should probably wrap this up. I don't think that we're doomed. I don't think we're doing terribly well. Yeah, that's. Uh, it but... and you know the right. If somebody with the right thought or the right insight or the right discovery, things might get very much better quickly. But right now. I don't think we're doing very well. All right. Well, you know, thank you very much, Greg, for uh, for talking about this, and I'm sure we'll do another podcast on COVID-19. Yes, I'm, I'm. I guess I'm looking forward to the one where we talk about the next zero from uh, okay. Richard Epstein. All right. Well, goodbye. Goodbye.